Tim and Liz. Open your Bibles, if you have them, to Colossians chapter 4. <clears throat> Colossians chapter 4 will be in verses 2 to 6 this morning. If you don't have a Bible in the pew back in front of you, there is a Bible there, an ESV translation, um, page 985 in that Bible. Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 to 6 is where we'll be this morning. Going uh, on vacation this past Thanksgiving, uh, just a few days ago, reminded me of something uh, I'm not very good at. I, I have, see, when, it, when, you, when you go on a trip, especially when you're the parent of small children, it's not just pack up the luggage, put it in the car, and go. There is a lot of planning that goes into it. And I'm thankful that the Lord has given me my wife, who is the planner. Uh, without her, we would still be stranded on the side of a road somewhere, I'm sure. Um, but I have two jobs, essentially. See, Andrea gets all the luggage together. She thinks of all the things that are necessary for the kids. We have it mapped out by mile marker at mile marker X, Y, or Z, they get this. The snacks are there for this time. And at this moment, here's a book that can be read by the kids. And when they start to fuss, here's another book. Uh, we've got various other things that we give to them to, to make sure that we can make it down to our destination. I have two jobs. First, I'm the muscle. All right? When the bags are packed and everything's put together and everything's upstairs, I carry it downstairs to the back of the van and I play a game of Tetris <laughs> right there at the back of the van. I got to put everything together, make sure it fits just so. I've done some spectacular things right there in that little, that little area, packing bicycles and things like that. It's easy with square luggage. That's not hard. It's when you get a weird-shaped bicycle. That's when it gets difficult. The second job that I have, I'm not ever very, very good at. In fact, every time we get to this point in the vacation, we get everything packed in the van, we get everybody loaded, we get all, all situated in the van, I'm sitting in the driver's seat, Andrea's sitting in the passenger seat, all the kids are buckled into their car seats, all the things are plugged in that we need, everything's just right. I hit the brake, I hit the little button to start the van, and immediately I realize my failure. I've got a quarter tank of gas. Now, that's not a big deal when you got older kids, but when you got little kids, that all factors into the time it takes to drive. That stop at the gas station right out of the gate. We immediately have to go to the gas station. It, every time, it seems like. And every time I swear to myself, next time I'm going to remember to fill the van up the night before we go. And every time I forget. See, when you go on vacation, you can pack, you can get ready. You can have everything prepared down to the T. But if you don't have fuel, you're not going anywhere. Your vacation is not going to be very fun at all. In Colossians, we have talked at length throughout this book about being heavenly minded. And really, I, I titled the sermon series Heavenly Minded simply because of the, the theme that reoccurs throughout the book. We see it there in Colossians chapter 3, where Paul encourages us, even commands us, set your minds on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. 
This is a theme that he reminds us of throughout the book. And really all I'm trying to get at, we defined it by saying it's having one's attitudes and affections governed by the Spirit of God. And all, all we're trying to see there, all we're trying to, to do there, all we're trying to put into practice is that if we have become Christians and if we have taken in this new man, if we have taken on this new character that is the very character of Christ, if we have become that, if the Holy Spirit now indwells us, then our attitudes, our affections, the things that we like, the things that we think, the ways that we act, where we go, where we don't go, the things that we avoid and the things that we do should all be governed by the Holy Spirit who now dwells within us. That's who we are as Christians. That's what we're really saying when we're talking about being heavenly minded. Having our minds governed by the Holy Spirit. This morning, as we get to our passage, Paul's going to tell us what provides us the fuel for our heavenly mindedness. How is it that we can keep our attitudes and our affections on what Christ says is worthy? Let's look at our passage, Colossians chapter 4, starting in verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. This morning, we're seeing what amounts to really the final exhortation that Paul gives to the church at Colossae, and really to us as he closes out the body of his letter. He'll get to the final salutations next week for us, which will close out Colossians altogether for us. But as you can see here, the Colossian church is commanded to tirelessly pray. To get on their knees in prayer, both for themselves and for Paul. And prayer in this passage is lifted up as the fuel for their ministry. It's both for the Colossian church, it's their fuel, and for Paul, it's his fuel for ministry. This morning, I want to just make a couple observations. There's just two points that I want us to see in this text. There's some sub-points that go in there for us to observe about these things. But really, what I want us to see as we close out Colossians, as we begin getting to the end of Colossians, is that if what we're about as Christians is setting our minds on the kingdom, how do we truly set our minds on the things above? What is the fuel that allows us to do that? first thing I want us to see in the text is that a heavenly-minded congregation is dependent on prayer is dependent on prayer. 
Paul gives a reminder to the Colossian church here. He says, continue steadfastly. You can look with me there in verse 2. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer. The idea is to be devoted to it, to persist in it, to never waver from it. Now, if you look at this, the transition between this passage that we're in and the passage that we're in just a couple of weeks ago, where he talks about the Christian household, he immediately transitions out of the uh, appeal to the Christian household and, and then tells the Colossian church to, to pray. It seems like a, a, a pretty abrupt transition, talking about how the family should live to now encouraging us, commanding us to pray. But, but Paul is bringing the book to a close with these last set of commands before he closes this letter. And now he's largely directing their ministry to the outside world. As we talk about the family and what it looks like on the inside of our household, what does it look like as we begin our ministry to outsiders, as we open up to outsiders? And he begins by laying that foundation of prayer. But I think if, I, if we surveyed 100 people in this congregation, if we just lined you up at random and we asked you, what are the disciplines of the Christian life that you struggle with the most. My guess is that for 95 out of 100, prayer would be our biggest struggle. It would be the one discipline that we struggle to persist in the most. My guess is that this was even the case in Paul's day. Is the reason why he encourages it so much. Not just here in the book of Colossians, but elsewhere throughout the rest of his letters. To pray without ceasing. To continue in prayer steadfastly. Now, if you consider for a moment what's going on in prayer, let's just think about why it is that we struggle so mightily in prayer. Why it's so hard for us as a discipline to continue to practice. Well, first of all, in prayer... You're, you're talking to a being that you believe exists and can hear you, though you have never seen with your own eyes. Add to that the times when you pray and pray and pray and pray, and all you seem to get is silence in response. There are some in this congregation who are praying fervently for their own healing. There are many more in this congregation who are praying for the healing of others. That the Lord would give to them an earthly healing to rid their body of cancer or of whatever other disease. That they would be healed. There are times, even in the short time that I've been here, where we have prayed for people to have an earthly healing, and we prayed week in and week out. And the clouds did not open up. We did not hear a voice from heaven. No angel came and sat amongst us to tell us the answer. We found out over time that obviously God chose in His divine sovereignty 
not to answer our prayer for an earthly healing. That could be, for some in this room, a frustration. If we're just being honest, a frustration that hinders our prayer life. But the vast majority of us, if if asked why we don't take time in prayer, we would probably say, if we're honest again, something like, "I, I forget. I simply forget. Maybe even I don't have time. I get preoccupied doing a lot of other things and all of a sudden, poof, the day is gone and I haven't prayed at all. Or maybe some of us might be really honest and say, I don't really know how. Or, I don't see the point. Or, I start out with good intentions. I really want to pray. But then I fall asleep. But let me ask you something. Let's say the Lord came down. Maybe he sent an angel. Right here in the middle of Emmanuel Baptist Church. And the angel said to us, For everyone in this congregation, if you don't pray for five consecutive minutes throughout a day, you'll die. If he said that to us, if that was the rule, We probably have a whole lot less people in our congregation, that's for sure. But it would only take a couple of us dropping before we all realized the importance. And all of a sudden, taking out the trash to the curb at night before the trash comes the next morning wouldn't be nearly as important as getting in those five minutes in prayer. If I don't take... If I don't take time to pray, then taking out the trash to the curb will be the least of my worries. Excuse me, I'm fighting a cold. I think at the root of it all, we get lost in the importance of prayer. And maybe it's because we haven't seen it as very effective. Perhaps it's because that we aren't really sure if God is really listening to us. That He really hears us. Most likely it's because we're not quite sure of the point. As humans, we tend to think in sheer pragmatics. This thing that I'm doing is very effective and it produces great results. Therefore, I will keep doing it. This other thing is producing no tangible results, and therefore, to keep doing it and expecting a different result is the definition of insanity. The problem with this way of thinking when it comes to prayer is that it ignores many of the purposes for which we're given to pray. Certainly, Prayer is the ability to ask God for things that we need. I think it was John Piper that said prayer is wartime communication. It's a very good way of looking at it. God being the general, us being the soldier. Prayer is our walkie-talkie. It's our way of getting to God and telling Him, expressing to Him the things that we need on the battlefield. We're also told in Scripture that we can cast our cares on Him. Peter tells us 
because he cares for us. So it's, it, it can also be simply talking to God as, as one talks to a friend who truly cares for what concerns you have. But Paul gives us this command, continue steadfastly in prayer. And if we only pray when we see tangible results manifested in front of us, then my guess is that we'll always find this command to be the most challenging command in all of Scripture. But I think Paul brings to light here at least three reasons to pray. These would be subpoints. Three reasons. The first he brings to light is spiritual alertness. He says there in verse 2, look with me, he says, being watchful in it. What does it mean to be watchful in prayer? You'll probably recall a story in the Gospels. It's uh, as Jesus is preparing to go to the cross. It's actually the night that he gets taken into custody. He takes with him Peter, James, and John into the garden to go pray. And he tells them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Jesus uses the same word Paul uses there for be alert. He says, watch with me. And then, of course, Jesus goes and he prays and he comes back and he finds the disciples asleep. And he says to them, you couldn't watch with me for one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. What's he wanting them to watch out for? Certainly not the guards. He knows that they're coming, and he has no intention on running. What does he want them to watch out for? He told them only moments before, just ten verses prior to that, he says, you will fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Watch and pray. It's one idea expressed with two words for alertness. Jesus wants them to watch and pray. He's wanting His sheep to not fall into temptation. And so He gives them the command to be spiritually alert and ever in prayer lest they fall into temptation. And Paul here gives the Colossians a very similar command. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it. See, prayer is not merely asking for things. It's not merely expressing concerns even. Prayer is attuning your mind to the attitudes and affections of the very Spirit of God. So that you might not fall into temptation. It's being watchful. It's requiring that you, for however long, focus for a brief period of time on the fact that you need the God of the universe to guide your daily life. Second, he lists there, it's for thanksgiving. It's for thanksgiving. Our prayer is seasoned with thanksgiving. He adds this little phrase here at the end of verse 2, and it gives this added little punch to the command to pray. He says, with thanksgiving. And this shouldn't come as a surprise to any of us that have read through the book of Colossians, like all of us have if we've been in here since the beginning. 
Paul adds this phrase with thanksgiving several times throughout the book. He adds it in Colossians 1.3, in Colossians 1.11 and 12, in Colossians 2.7, in 3.15, 3.16, 3.17, and here in 4.2. He tells us explicitly to give thanks and let it season everything about who we are as Christians. Gratitude. It's thanking people, thanking God for the people that he's put in your life. That's what Paul does in Colossians 1.3. It's thanking God for having qualified us to even be saved, as he tells the Colossians in 1.11 and 12. It's abounding in thanksgiving as the manner for which you live your life as a Christian, as he tells us in Colossians 2.7. Then he goes on, in a string of three consecutive verses in 3.15, 3.16, and 3.17. And he says this in 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you were called in one body and be thankful. It seasons our fellowship as Christians, as a church. Then he says in 16 that we're to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in our hearts to God. So it seasons our worship as we come together. Then he wraps it up in 17, commanding us to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Everything that we do is seasoned with gratitude, with thankfulness. And then last here in 4.2, even our prayers to God are to be saturated with thanksgiving. It's a very basic concept at work here in the text. It's very basic. See, we as Christians are thankful for that which we didn't earn and that which we don't deserve. It's the concept of gratitude. What must it say about us? And our view of our own salvation, when we go extended periods of time without expressing our gratitude to God. Think about the food on your table for just a second. You went to work to get a paycheck. You took that paycheck and you bought food to put on a plate as you set your table. And then you put it in your mouth and you chew it with your teeth. Anyone looking on the outside at this process would say that you provided all this for yourself. Yet in between the setting of the table and the chewing of the food, you and I are going to bow our heads and to give thanks to the Lord for providing that food. The Christian should realize something about this process. That without God's grace and provision, you wouldn't have a body with which to work. A job in which to work. Money for which to work. Groceries to eat. A plate to put them on or a mouth to chew them with. Without His abundant grace, we would be less than a speck of dust in the vast expanse of nothingness. And yet we forget to express our gratitude to Him. 
Let's think about this for a minute. If prayer is communication to God to keep us from falling into temptation, and it's seasoned with thanksgiving as we express that back to God for all the things that He has done, then what is an absence of prayer? It seems to me that it's sheer arrogance. It's pride. Might as well begin our day with just a simple statement. Lord, today... I can provide for myself, and I don't need your help to keep me from stumbling. So why don't you just sit in the corner and come whenever I call you? It's pride. Church, I'm just as guilty as the next person of this kind of arrogant attitude. And I fear we've fallen into a trap in America particularly in America, maybe over the entire world, but particularly in America, where we've convinced ourselves that our security in this country was provided by our own hand. Maybe it's been by the might of our military. Maybe it's been by the blessing of a democratic vote. Maybe it's been by the provision of a wonderful constitution. Or maybe it's by a legion of other things that are perfectly within our control, so we think. So what happens then when our country is torn apart, when the very fabric of what holds us together is being torn asunder? What happens when God does to us what He did to Judah and Jerusalem in Isaiah 3-4? You might want to mark that down and go read it sometime. One of the judgments that he gives to Judah and Jerusalem in Isaiah 3-4 is to appoint infants to rule over them. Immature leaders to rule. So what happens when it becomes apparent that our nation is being judged in a similar way? for a blatant denial of God's word and a prideful attitude? What happens when the church is being disciplined for its complacency in the midst of that prideful attitude? Do we turn to the Lord in prayer? No. We turn to a vote to get our way out of it. Our own might got us here. So our own might will get us through it. Maybe this guy will fix it. So I'll mark his name in the ballot. Maybe that lady will fix it. So I'll mark her name in the ballot. Now this isn't a political sermon. It's not even a comment on the candidates that were presented to us in the last presidential election. It's not even a comment about the upcoming election in Alabama. It's not a comment about any of those things. It's more a comment about the state of the church. What does it stay for our spiritual state, the spiritual state of the church, when we struggle in our prayer life? It means that for as long as we have struggled in our prayer life, we have refused to be spiritually alert. Which means we have no doubt 
fallen into temptation and committed untold sins that we are unaware of, maybe. And we haven't returned to the Lord in gratitude, recognizing that the very breath we breathe is a remarkable gift from His hand. Amen. You remember the list of indictments that Paul gives in Romans 1.21 of a pagan society? He says this, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And where Paul is describing fallen humanity in that passage, I think when you read it, it, very look, it looks very much like 21st century American church. Although they knew God, they neither honored Him as God or gave Him thanks, but became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. What Paul is saying here in, in Colossians is that prayer is the fuel of the heavenly-minded church for spiritual alertness, for thanksgiving, and last, for gospel witness. Look with me at verses 3 and 4. He says, At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. So Paul asks, or even really commands, the Colossian church to pray for him. And what does he ask for first? What does he command of them first? Pray that God would open a door for us. Now, ironically, Paul, at the time he writes this, is sitting behind a door in prison, behind a closed door in prison. But what he's asking for is not that that door would be opened, he's asking for an opportunity to present the gospel. We know it's very clear that Paul doesn't need to be out of prison in order to share the gospel. He tells the church at Philippi in, 1, 12 through, in Philippians 1, 12-13, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me really has served to advance the gospel. He's in prison, and he's telling them, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. In other words, he's sitting there chained to an imperial guard, and he's telling them the reason why he's in prison. He's sharing the gospel with the entire Roman guard. And so regardless of where he is, he naturally engages in these gospel witnessing conversations. So he's not praying that he would get out of jail. He's not praying for those kinds of open doors. He's recognizing that in order for him to actually have an impact, to be able to present the gospel, to be able to have it actually take effect he needs God to open a door for him to actually have clear opportunities to declare the mystery of Christ he needs God to go before him and open a door but what is this mystery of Christ that he's proclaiming look back with me at Colossians 1.26 just turn just a couple of pages to your left and see Colossians 1.26. He tells us exactly what the mystery of Christ is. We talked about this when we were there, but let's turn there and look at it again. 
He says in 26, The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to His saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So Paul mentions this mystery three times in three different verses in Colossians. And the mystery of Christ is something that God knew beforehand, but that we found out much later. And he revealed to us later on what his will was. And that is that God's plan was to redeem a whole world of lost sinners, even Gentiles, not just Jews, to save them by sending to them Christ. That's how Paul has reiterated it time and time again throughout Colossians, is that prior to Christ, we are simply deserving of the justice of God. We are deserving of His full wrath. And that between the time of our sin in Adam and Christ's coming, God simply stays the hand of justice. Instead of smacking us off the earth like He had every right to do, He stays the hand of justice. And in a surprising turn of events, sends to us, to earth, in the form of a little baby, His Son. We're about to celebrate this in the coming weeks. And then a few months later, we'll turn to Easter where we'll celebrate the fact that that baby grew up into a man living a perfect life. And instead of receiving all the divine rewards that he rightfully earned, he gave them up and instead suffered the justice that you and I deserve on the cross. And offers to us his rewards by faith. Simply by belief, you can have his rewards. That's the mystery that Paul is getting to here. That he's talking about. This is the mystery. And Paul calls it not a, a mystery, not because we can't understand it. He calls it a mystery because we didn't know it until it happened. It caught everyone by surprise. And he's praying now for this open door to be able to declare that to people. To be able to have the opportunity to actually speak it to people. And then he says, not just an opportunity to speak it, but he says, to make it clear, which is how he ought to speak. And there's a sense in which he wants to make it clear and like he wants to make it plain so that people can understand it, so that people can understand what he is presenting. But the word that he uses for make it clear means to reveal. He's not just wanting to make it simple, necessarily. He wants to remove the mystery so that it's no longer a mystery to people. He wants them to see it with, his own, with their own eyes. He wants to reveal God's plan of salvation for humanity. That would include making a simple case for Christ. He tells the Corinthians that he came preaching Christ and Him crucified, contrary to the wisdom of the Greek world. But even Peter admits that Paul is sometimes hard to understand. So it's not like Paul is not wanting to go into complex matters. Of course he is. Prayer, he sees, as the fuel for spiritual alertness, for thanksgiving, and for gospel witness. He wants to be able to make it clear to them, to reveal it to them. 
And a heavenly-minded congregation is dependent on it. The last point here. A heavenly-minded congregation is faithful in its gospel witness. Main point number two. A heavenly-minded congregation is faithful in its gospel witness. Now, this is a, a shift here in what he's been talking about. He's been talking about prayer for the Christian, and in our case, the whole church engaged in prayer and how it depends on prayer. And now he's moving into how we deal with the unbelieving world around us. The term he uses here is outsiders. How we walk in the presence of outsiders, which of course means unbelievers. But the connection here is obvious enough, but it's worth noting here. Paul has commanded them to pray for themselves there in verse 2. And then he's prayed, he's, he's commanded them to pray for him as he would witness to the people in the world. And now in verses 5 and 6, he is telling them that as they have become spiritually alert, now they're moving out into the community around them to the outsiders and they're influencing them by the way that they walk in their presence, by the obedience that they, they commit to to the word. Of course, that doesn't mean they don't care about the insiders, the brothers and sisters in the church. But Paul is specifically concerned with how they walk in the presence of outsiders. The presence of people who don't know Jesus. There's two ways that I think he mentions here that he wants us to be concerned about our ministry toward outsiders. First, he says, redeeming the time. He wants us to redeem the time. Um, if you look there in verse 5 at the beginning, he says, walk in wisdom, making the best use of time. And now we've talked about how Colossians and Ephesians go, go hand in hand. They go side by side. They say some very similar things in the text. Well, in Ephesians 5, 15, and 16, he tells us a very similar thing. But he says, uh, he says walk in wisdom, making the best use of time. But there he adds, for the days are evil. He gives you an idea of what he's thinking, how we make the best use of time. He says the days are evil. So for a Christian, the more evil the days get, the more we stand out if our character looks like that of Christ. Amen. The more heavenly-minded we are in the midst of a dark generation, the better Christ looks, the more we stand out. So Paul has told us that we're citizens of the kingdom of Christ and that we have put on this new man and we're putting away this old man. The new man is the nature, the character of Christ. We're to put on his attitudes, his affections, his habits, his characteristics. We're to take off that of Adam, the sinful man, throw it away. And the new man is conscious of how he walks in front of outsiders. But then he says, making the best use of time. What does that mean? It literally means redeeming the time or buying it back. So in other words, the days are captured by evil. What characterizes the world around us right now outside the walls of this church is evil. And so as we take on the characteristics of Christ and as we walk in front of them, exhibiting the very nature and characteristics of Christ, we are presenting to them a compelling case for following Christ and thereby redeeming them back from those evil days. Encouraging them to follow Christ by the way that we act, in other words. That's redeeming the time. The alertness that prayer brings, in other words, fuels our awareness of the darkness of the days that we're in. The less we commune with the Lord, 
the less we talk to him. The less we dedicate our lives to prayer, the more we simply blend in with our surroundings. The more conversations with my neighbor just become idle, meaningless talk, having virtually no point whatsoever. Recently, we saw this in the political campaign. Again, this is not a political sermon. We saw this with uh, Vice President Pence when he made it public that he doesn't dine with members of the opposite, opposite sex by himself, without his wife present or without somebody else there. And every Christian that read that said, yeah, neither do we. Totally makes sense. I get it. Now, I don't know Vice President Pence, but I know that he claims to know Christ. And I certainly hope that that's true of him. But I know he claims that. It illustrates the point, though, that that statement was widely panned by the culture and the media. Nobody could understand why a person would do this. Everyone called into question whether he could actually be the vice president if that was his policy. And then, of course, a matter of months later, we watch Hollywood implode with sexual dysfunction. And now it's spilling over into the political arena as well as we're watching politician after politician after politician after politician explode into sexual dysfunction as well. And scandal. And truth be told, if everything was known, all the workplaces in the world would probably have a very similar problem. I suspect that all Vice President Pence was saying was that he doesn't want there to be the slightest hint of impropriety in what he does. That no one could ever accuse him of scandal. And that he wants to be above reproach. That's certainly a biblical principle. It's stated in the Bible. It's not exclusive to Christians, obviously, but it, it is a biblical principle. The darker the society gets, the brighter those that take on the new nature of Christ shine. That is redeeming the time. The second thing that he says is using winsome speech. Using winsome speech. That's not only true of the things that we do, it's also true of the things that we say. So it's not just the actions that we take, it's also the things that we say. The way we talk. So he's not simply referring to the words that we use, or the words that we don't use, the words we shouldn't use, like profanity. He's talking about how we actually talk to outsiders. He says that it needs to be seasoned with grace. Or he, says, he, say, he uses the phrase there, seasoned with salt. He uses this, this image that it's appealing. It's appealing talk. It, you might say it's tasty talk. He uses the image of a, of a, a dish at, a, at the best restaurant. It leaves the person hearing wanting more. Yeah. That's the idea of it being seasoned with salt. Salt's not only good for preservation, it's also good to bring out the flavors in food. He's saying that our, our speech should be so flavorful that the people that hear it want more of it. Yeah. You all know people that fit this bill. Yeah. 
people that are warm and hospitable and they're godly people. And they have these personalities that are infectious. And it's not because they flatter you. It's not because they're, they're funny or even really particularly charming or anything like that. But for, a, for whatever reason, you want to be around them. You want to talk with them. And it seems like every time you talk with them, you grow closer to the Lord. And you don't want the conversation to end. That's the idea presented here. It's speech that's appealing and winsome. The assumption that Paul makes is that because of your actions and because of your speech, there are going to be people that inquire of you what you believe. Why is it that you are different? Peter tells us in 1 Peter 3.15, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Speech, seasoned with grace, gives teeth to the gospel. But all of this that we do and say is made ready by prayer. It's fueled by prayer. Paul knows this. This is why he puts the command at the very beginning. Pray first for open doors. Pray that you would be alert. That you would understand the times that you live in. Pray for all those things. And then be conscious of how you walk in front of outsiders and how you speak. Praying for your own alertness that you won't fall into temptation and for boldness to preach the gospel through open doors. Steadfastness in prayer readies our hearts and minds for ministry. And prayer fuels the ministry of the church as it evangelizes the world. Now, why does this matter? For Emmanuel Baptist Church, to be heavenly-minded, to be a heavenly-minded congregation, we have to turn to the Lord in prayer as fuel for our public ministry. Prayer is going to play a central role in the ministry of this church going forward. In the new year, we're going to begin reading through the Bible together as a congregation. Individually in our homes, but together as a congregation, we're going to be reading through the Bible together. Along with that Bible reading plan that I already have selected, there will be a prayer guide to go with it that will help you as you read the Bible to structure your prayer life in accordance with what you are reading in the text. Hopefully teaching us all as a body to pray and how important prayer is. So I hope to get these in your hands before the beginning of the new year so that we can start at the beginning of the new year together. I'm also hopeful that you'll participate with me in doing this. Every person to a man would do this. During the course of 2018, prayer is going to play a much more central role in our worship services. So that they're not just transitional pieces of prayer to move people hitherto and yon. But they actually function to bring us together and worship the Lord and pray to Him in adoration, in confession of sin, in thanksgiving for the things that He has given to us in supplication for people around us. 
But none of this is going to have any effect in our preparation for ministry to this community if the changes that we make in the worship service or the changes that we do um, giving you the guide or, or anything, anything like that, it's not going to have any effect unless it's met with acceptance in the home. Unless it actually involves you and me sitting on our couch, reading the words of the text, praying to God, taking time out of our day and actually doing that and committing to doing that on a daily basis. Remember just a couple weeks ago we said it starts at home. That's where the heavenly mindedness of a congregation happens, is at home. And this is the fruit of what happens at home. And it's going to begin with prayer in our homes. We have to have a deep and earnest desire to be steadfast in our prayer life so that we'll be alert and ready for the ministry that God has for us. In a moment, we're going to stand and sing after I pray. And certainly, we're going to sing Joy to the World. I know everybody wants to sing that around this time of year, especially. I'm going to ask something of you. As we sing, could we also dedicate this time to prayer? That you and I as individuals or maybe even as a family, if you have your family next to you, could pray to God, confessing to Him our own prayerless life. Asking for Him to move in our congregation, to drive us to our knees, and to teach us of our dependence on Him. Could we pray that together? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess to you that we have been arrogant and prideful. I know me in particular. Have been arrogant and prideful. We so often try to go at it alone and do it ourselves, never taking a moment to confess our desperate need for you. Lord, forgive us. Have mercy on us. Lord, I pray that you would drive us to our knee in prayer. We know that might mean suffering for us. But for one reason or another, convince us of our dependence on you. We know that that's the only way we'll make it. In Jesus' name, amen.